I'm sitting at lunch in Ojai. It's a little place called The Nest. They serve sort of all sorts of vegan, fair, and healthy foods. And I'm there with Byron Katie. I'm pretty excited about this because Byron Katie, in 1986, she had an epiphany. She was agoraphobic. She was an alcoholic. She was addicted to codeine and all sorts of other substances. She couldn't barely go outside. She, her self-esteem was so poor that she wouldn't even sleep in a bed. And there she was on the floor one morning, and a cockroach climbed over her ankle. And in that very moment, she saw the source of the universe, the source of all suffering and how to alleviate that suffering. And she codified that vision into a method of inquiry called the work that's helped tens of thousands of people. And so I'm sitting there at lunch with this wonderful salmon salad. And I'm thinking this is a great opportunity to glean some sort of enlightenment um, in this moment. And so I asked Katie, I said, Katie, what is enlightenment? And just like that, there's silence. Katie's not afraid of silence. Um, she sat there kind of chewing away on some vegan delight. It reminded me in the moment of my many trips to Japan. I used to go there quite often as a businessman. And I would sit in some ivory tower with a high-powered Japanese executive. And it was very different than my experiences in the United States. See, us here in the Western world, we want to fill space with words. We're very uncomfortable with silence. That's a whole other topic. We'll talk about silence. In Japan, the silence was treasured. It was actually seen as a sign of respect, that they were contemplating the idea, contemplating and digesting what you've said to come up with a thorough and thoughtful response, not a reaction, but a response. And after my many trips to Japan, I got quite used to this silence. And, I was, and so I sat there with Katie unperturbed, relaxed in the silence. And finally, after masticating a hundred times to get the most possible nutrients out of her vegan delight, she said, Jeff, what makes you feel light? Oh, Katie, well, you know, when I'm moving, maybe I'm playing tennis or, or doing yoga or I'm with friends, and we're in a, in a, in a conversation, in a volley. Um, or I find that zone when I'm playing music. Yeah, all of those things make me feel light. Okay, Jeff, well, what makes you feel heavy? Oh, well, when I'm brooding over something, when someone's crossed me, at work, or I'm plotting some sort of devious, nefarious, Machiavellian revenge around someone that's done me some sort of minor slight or cut me off at a traffic light. Hmm, what else makes me feel? Oh, when I overeat, that certainly makes me feel heavy. She's like, okay, okay. Jeff, this is so simple. You don't have to be the Buddha. You don't have to be Jesus Christ. Just do the things that make you feel lighter. That is enlightenment. It's been a long, beautiful, crazy year 
This is our 53rd episode. It marks one year since we started Commune and the Commune podcast. Commune is a global wellness community, and we have an online course platform with some of the world's greatest teachers, and that's true. And we're here on a mission to inspire and heal, pass down wisdom, and, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune podcast, where every week... I do my best to explore the ideas and practices that help us live that healthy, connected, and purpose-filled lives. We have a course platform and a community platform, and you can find out everything about that at onecommune.com. So this is sort of a retrospective episode. Looking back at the last year, it's been a year of incredible opportunity for learning, particularly for me, I'll be honest. I feel like... I get sort of regular anointments from these incredible teachers that have amassed so much wisdom and knowledge and in some cases enlightenment. And I get to be somewhat of this plagiaristic sponge uh, soaking in some of this stuff. And I'm reminiscing somewhat about the stories that we've heard over the last year. I remember we heard the emotional and harrowing story of Ashley Spence and her journey towards forgiveness. And learned a lot about forgiveness from Dr. Robert Enright, the foremost expert on forgiveness in in the world, who's written, I think, eight or nine books on the subject. The notion that forgiveness is not just a gift that you give someone else, but it's a gift that you give yourself. It's It's a cultivated skill and virtue through which you can relieve toxicity, relieve anger, and live a life that is more full and less hampered by these negative emotions that forgiveness is perhaps the greatest of all virtues and you can forgive but still hold people accountable you do not have to forsake justice to forgive and forgiveness is all in your own hands you don't need two people to forgive you need two people to reconcile but you have the power to forgive And that can be a portal into a much, much happier and purpose-filled lives. These stories are so important. They're so inspirational. They're so moving that because we can see our own stories in these stories and hopefully use them as inspiration to tap into our better angels. Over this past year, we've learned so many different kinds of practices, unique and esoteric, ecstatic breath work, um, tapping or emotional freedom technique, where we actually use our fingers and we tap them on meridian points and talk through trauma, through this kind of self-imposed acupuncture. We can relieve the held up trauma and stress. We've learned other kinds of stress management techniques that in some ways are just actually very simple and very practical. My friend Brendan Burchard told me this one that's just completely changed my whole rhythm of my day. He said, instead of planning hour-long meetings, plan 50-minute meetings and then take the 10 minutes that you've saved and reset 
breathe, maybe do a few downward dogs, but also emotionally prepare, prepare for the next thing that you're going to do. Figure out the intention that you want to approach that next meeting with. So save those 10 minutes and they can be a game changer to, br to bring that kind of vitality, intention, and vibrancy that Brendan always brings into the world. We learned about sleep techniques. This is a huge one for me because I'm an insomniac well-documented insomniac, I might say. And I learned about my chronotype. Okay, I'm a lion. Rawr. Yeah. It's like a chronotype essentially is determined by when your body naturally emits uh, hormones such as melatonin, the sleepy hormone that makes you want to go to sleep, and serotonin or cortisol, sort of the awake hormone. And your body naturally has a cycle that are emits these very, these uh, naturally occurring hormones. And what you want to do is align with that cycle. So what I realized is that I do best when I go to bed at 9 or 9.30 p.m. because that's when my body is full of mel melatonin. When I miss that window, I have a really tough time sleeping. This also gets me up quite early um, and has me kind of thriving earlier in the day. Now, this sounds like a somewhat boring and sedentary existence, not full of a lot of nightlife, but I'll tell you one thing. I'd rather be vibrant and energetic than sleepy and grumpy. Oh, I spent two weeks uh, this spring with Wim Hof. Do you know Wim Hof? You might know him because he climbed Mount Everest in... Uh, these tiny little skibby speedos with no other clothes. Yeah, that's right. And he's also run a marathon, I think, in Namibia in 110 degree heat, a full marathon without drinking water. I think he's also run another marathon in the Arctic Circle with no shoes and a bathing suit. This is correct. He has been able to go within to get the most out of life. But he has developed a breathing technique mixed with cold therapy that elicits this kind of hermetic response in the body by essentially adding some stressors to the body, but then that eliciting a positive response in the autonomic nervous system, which has had incredibly positive effects on your vascular system, on your endocrine system. But more than that, as he would say, he's like, this is an exercise of the soul. We do the breathing and then we get into the ice and we find our deeper self and then we take that soul power and we change the world. Yes, Wim Hof. You will enjoy Wim Hof's course on commune um, in the fall. And I had a very uh, interesting podcast with him. As you can see, I've mastered his elocution. And you will see that in my strange need to be liked and accepted at all times, I have assumed a Dutch accent for that particular episode, um, much to the horror and embarrassment of my family members. We've learned about the nature kind of of recovery with Tommy Rosen and the scope of the problem of addiction. We've learned about meditation, about quieting the mind, about discovering that we are not our thoughts or our feelings. Like Rumi described, we've discovered that we are the guest house and there are guests, invited and uninvited, jealousy, anger, love, all sorts of emotions. 
but we are something beyond those things. And we cultivate this kind of observer's mind. We sit in silence. It's said that all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly alone. Why is silence so important? Herman Melville wrote, the God's one and only voice is silence. What did he mean? So this taps into another episode um, that we did on the show with Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra, we, we um, explored the fundamental nature of reality. What is that reality beyond the subjective? Our, our ability to perceive reality is limited by our five senses that there are the painted lady butterfly that has 30,000 lenses. What does the world look like to that butterfly? Not the same as it looks to us who sees in red, blues, and greens. Horses only see in blue and greens. What is reality to all of these different species? A butterfly tastes with its legs. What is that experience like? So we have this sense of subjective reality that is limited by our special ability to perceive it. And this is where silence comes back in. Because as a species, we have virtually, it's impossible for us to discern what is infinite. We live in certain constraints of our understanding with these constructs of time and space, of location, of form. But silence is a portal to the other side, a side outside of our five senses. So if you follow me here, silence is in itself infinite. It has no beginning. It has no end. It has no location. It has no form. When we sit deeply in silence, when we cultivate that presence and that awareness in silence, it is the closest that we can get to understanding what is infinite without location and without form. And that is where God lives. That is where the soul lives outside of time and space. Muktananda said, that which is real never changes. We have a sense of reality that is based in, for example, our anatomy. But our anatomy is always changing. Who are we? Are we that little boy in that picture? Or am I that sort of strange, pimply adolescent? Am I the current sort of handsome manifestation of my current body? No. I am none of those things, according to Muktananda, because those things are all changing. What I am is this thing that is infinite. What I am is the infinite soul. What I am is that my divine nature, something beyond my thoughts and my feelings. What I am is something sublime. And this is where I am yearning to return. And silence and meditation gives us that portal into the glimpse of what is that infinite soul. And that's another thing that we've learned about.
I really hope that you found gems of wisdom kind of hidden in the rough, that you've taken them home and polished them like a piece of coal becoming a diamond, that you've been able to apply them to your own life to live a more inspired and, and connected life. I really hope that this show has provided some access to that. You know, soon we have an episode with Russell Brand um, where he addresses recovery from our addictions. Strangely and ironically, I'm somewhat addicted to him because he's so brilliant and his vocabulary is so rich. He looks at the notion of addiction in the broadest possible terms. I mean, sure, you can be addicted to heroin and cocaine and alcohol, and the scope of that problem is so huge, 20 million people in the United States. But what about all of the other more insidious addictions? Instagram, gambling, codependency, sugar, chocolate cake, a bit of porn here and there, being liked? These are the more insidious forms of addiction that can take a lifetime to sort of recognize and unfurl? How do we unwind these patterns that don't serve us when it's so easy to fulfill our desires in the material world, that the accumulation of more goods or services are going to make us happy, but it's always a dead end. But the modern Western society makes it makes us such accessible hosts to addiction. I mean, we carry around a device in our pocket at all times. We touch it 2,700 times a day, liking it and disliking some other things. And that all is going into an algorithm that then spits back things out at us, marketing to us constantly. It's almost crazy that we agree to carry this thing that follows us, that knows exactly where we are and what we like at all times. Yet we, we love it. We are addicted to it. And what concerns me and the reason why I really started this show and the reason why I started Commune is that people seem to be unhappy. They seem to be lonely. They seem to be anxious. They seem to be chronically ill. And of course, there are statistics to prove that out. I mean, half of the people in the United States have diabetes or pre-diabetes, you know, 150 some odd million people. And of course, society has rigged that game that through our own tax dollars, we contribute to subsidies for cash crops that then get sold under the true cost of production to food manufacturers that then process those corn and soy and wheat into high fructose corn syrup and add it to 84% of every single thing that we buy in the grocery store and contribute to food deserts where you can't find a fresh vegetable or a fruit. And guess what? We're all obese and we're all sick. Society has worked its way, modern society has reinforces every day, every single minute that somehow we will find contentment in the accumulation of the next thing. And that that thing contributes to, will somehow contribute to our own happiness or self-esteem. And this is the trap of the ego that we think 
that our identity is bundled up into what people think of us or what we have or what our resume says or what our job is or that we're in competition with others and separate from others and separate from God and separate from our infinite soul when really those things need to be all connected. We're lonely as a society. Vivek Murthy, Obama's Surgeon General, called loneliness the biggest epidemic in the United States. We're bunkered off from each other. We're sorted. I read in Brene Brown's book something like 25 years ago, 20% of us lived in a quote-unquote landslide district, a district where one political candidate won by a landslide. Now 80% of us live in those districts, 80% of us. So all we have are people that believe the same thing that we do. We're not challenged. We can't reach across. We can't step one foot on the bridge. We can't recognize other people's common humanity. We don't recognize our common destiny. We are separate. We have picket fences around our house. We lock our doors. And what we need to find is a new form of consciousness that fosters connection. And I get little jolts of dopamine-fueled optimism when I see candidates like Cory Booker or Marianne Williamson or Tim Ryan on the stage of these Democratic debates that are starting to talk about a politics of love, Marianne particularly, and some folks are out there rolling their eyes. But in fact, when we look back at the, over the course of history, it's been the great spiritual leaders that have talked about love, that had talked about spirit that then comes down and informs our politics. We need to reach up and find something that can inspire people to see a reality, a society that is greater than themselves. The New Deal, the Great Society, the New Frontier, it wasn't about landing someone on the moon. Sure, that was great, and that was a feat of technological innovation. What it was, though, was collective joy. It got people outside of their own personal, material, individualistic reality and got them to believe in something bigger than themselves. Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, they talked about love all the time. Are we so cynical? Are we so filled with irony that we can't recognize love as a prominent force in our society. And we, we explored um, in an episode on the show called How We Gather, how people are now communing, literally, because 25% of us are disaffiliated. Our, our society has become increasingly secularized. Our government and our institutions have become increasingly secular, secularized. Now, at some basic level, we are spiritual beings having a temporary human experience. So to divorce God, spirit, from our institutions, though there are good reasons to divorce church and state for the protection of religious minorities and for religious freedom, but to divorce spirit and love and compassion and empathy 
from our public institutions and our public discourse leads to a world that is dominated by the ego and individual materialism. And what we need are to find different structures, different systems that engender and foster community. So we explored this and how we gather. So if you're not going, if you're a millennial and you're not going to church, well, then where are you going? So we talk about this, you know, yoga, the rise of yoga studios, soul cycle, um, AA, which is a fantastic example. But you look at like soul cycle and yoga studios. And while there is a certain, uh, obviously, there's a tradition in yoga that is also spiritual. You know, a soul cycle teacher, has, there's no theology there. There's no pedagogy around theism or morality it's not enough just to put a candle out and say namaste at the end if you are going to replace essentially the church as a community gathering place a place where people come together around like-minded beliefs and values and practices you can't instill uh, a a pastor like quality in a cyclist it's just it doesn't make sense what we need are is a new form of spiritual commune, a place where people can get together around certain kinds of high-minded concepts and beliefs and figure out how they're going to work together in the service of the common good, in the service of mankind. I believe that the only way that we are going to solve the salient problems of our time is if we can come together and work creatively and constructively and we're not doing that and this is what causes me a lot of consternation is that we are bunkered we are socially polarized we're atomized and fragmented around this wedge belief and this identity politics when really we need to come together now more than ever before to solve these issues and it's not just personal issues it's societal issues it's immigration it's healthcare, it's global warming it's all of these things that the future of the world are dependent on Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. If I have a great dream for commune, it is this. It's these ideas that are emanating from these great teachers, from these thought leaders, from these speakers, from these modern poets and mystics. It's that these ideas can inspire people to then bring those ideas alive in their own community through local politics, through community gardens, through council, through conversation. It can be in a bar. It can be in a yoga studio. It can be in a place of work. But this is what is incumbent on all of us as individuals. This is what Paul Hawken taught us in his, um, in his podcast episode about the environment, that the human condition is not something that is happening to us that we are an active part in it. Joel Salatin said, the human condition is simply the aggregate of billions of little decisions. We have the ability, each and every one of us, to shape our reality in our own home, in our own community. And this is that dream, is that to take these ideas and to make them into your own ideas, to become leaders in your own community, to build and foster connection in your own community. 
that's what the dream of commune is. I am incredibly inspired by this every day. I'm so grateful for those of you who have listened, who have cared, who have written in. I want to continue to foster that direct relationship with you. Just email me anytime, jeff at onecommune.com, and I will respond. I'm going to read every single one of these because this is my life's work. I'm so grateful to have this show, to have this outlet, and, uh, and for all of you that are part of this burgeoning community around these very, very important thoughts and issues. Mm-hmm.